Matthew chapter 5, our second study really here in the, the official Sermon on the Mount, if you will. As Jesus now has taken the Beatitudes and he's delivered them to the disciples and they're now mulling those things over and then within the crowd that is gathered around him there on the mount it's not all good there's a few folks in there who are they're antagonists just like some people come to church for the wrong reason so some people were at the feet of Jesus for the wrong reason. They had a critical spirit. They had a judgmental heart. They were no doubt thinking, as he's saying these things, well, well, that's crazy. They were probably already crafting their negative responses. Probably some of you know some people in your own life whom you barely get a couple of words out and they're already responding back to you with something negative. They're saying something maybe about what you've said before you even finish your sentence. They've got something to say to bring condemnation, maybe to bring an accusation, maybe to say something falsely against you for his name's sake. And so it was, as Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount, as he begins to lay out these amazing bullet sermons, these things that just when you take them in, you're like, did he really just say that? Did he actually tell us that the law is still in effect? Aren't we children of grace? Aren't we saved by grace and through faith? Now, they didn't know that per se at this moment. But for you and I, as we now hear these words, as we continue and we pick up in verse 17 of Matthew 5, this is one of those passages that people are like, "Mm, I'm not sure that belongs in the Bible. Does it really mean what it says? Remember, grace is not cheap. It's absolutely free. But all that contrary living, everything that Jesus has said, all the way through the Beatitudes, we now have seen we're going to be blessed if we're persecuted. We're going to go out as salt and, and light. And this is really addressed maybe to those who are in the crowd who are starting to think, man, this guy's going down some bizarre road. Undoubtedly, the scribes, and undoubtedly, the Pharisees, undoubtedly, their representatives were in this crowd as well. Because they were constantly following Jesus. And can I tell you that we have some folks that get on the internet and they constantly are following what's going on here at Calvary Chapel South Bay. They're constantly picking apart and, you know, trying to say, ah, you know, you said this. Just want to remind you, I'm not Jesus. Every once in a while you may 
find something I said. I may have to adjust it because I'm a human being. But this is the Lord Jesus speaking. He doesn't need to retract a word of what he's going to say. It's absolutely 100% truth. But there are critics about the word of the Lord. And they're in our world in massive numbers. The body of Christ, the real church, the true body of believers, we're a minority in our world. I can tell you that. And it's not getting easier to be a Christian. It's getting more difficult. It's beginning to cost people something to follow Christ. And so in that crowd, that day, we now have the Beatitudes in us. We have the call of God on us to go out and be that blessed salt and light. And Jesus now adds to what he's already said as we pick up in verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. But I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. What? I'd imagine there's probably a couple of the guys that were saying, hey, could, could you repeat that? I thought you were going to come and show us a new way. Aren't you Messiah? Aren't you the King of Kings? Aren't you the Lord of Lords? They're, they're probably one. Some of them have got the right picture. Aren't you going to bring in that kingdom living? Verse 18, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. And here it comes. To the Hebrews that were sitting wondering, to the scribes, to the Pharisees, maybe a member or two of the Sanhedrin, Perhaps a Sadducee in the crowd. Maybe one of the local rabbis. Maybe several of them. People who are doctors of the law. For assuredly I say to you till heaven and earth pass away that not one yote. Not one tittle. Will by no means pass away. From the law until it's all fulfilled. And whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments. Seriously? The least of these? No, I'm okay with the biggies. You know, I'm not, probably not going to murder anybody. not going to get into an adulterous relationship. But, you know, that whole truth thing, that's a little bit tough. Whoever breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless, and here he comes. These guys are in the crowd. They're scattered around. Jesus being God knows exactly who they are. I'm, I'm thinking he probably looked straight at them. 
You know, every once in a while, even, in, even when the sanctuary is full, people will actually say, you looked right at me. You, you said that to me, didn't you? Uh, no. But God probably had a word for you. And yet, here's Jesus. He's looking out across that sea of humanity that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. They're, all, they're shaking their head now. They're, they're, their eyeballs are starting to have a little twitch in them. And so Jesus now is affirming, in essence, he's affirming the very law that he says he's going to come to one day deal with. He's saying it still stands, the validity of it. And he, he uses a couple of words. He, he said even the smallest part of it is not to be obliterated, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen. And he uses a couple of words that we don't use in our English language. He uses the yot, which in the King James, it's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a little tiny thing. It looks like almost like an apostrophe. It would have been the iota. So when we say iota, that is actually the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet. It's the tiniest little thing. You know, now we live in a world, and, and I, I, I'm kind of amazed because I have, I have a lot of young people that text me and do all those kinds of things, and I'm looking at it and I'm going, that's not English. It's, it's just like a bunch of consonants, and you know, it's LOL, and you know, it's just like, it's like, what is that? That's like some kind of, you know, just craziness. And you, you, they not only leave out letters, they leave out words. And Jesus is talking about something infinitesimally smaller than that with regard to the context, with regard to the law itself. He's saying, not even the punctuation, not even the little tiny thing that the tittle was was a small dash that's used in Hebrew to differentiate between letters much like a G can be distinguished from a C by simply putting a cross on the bottom of the C you understand that or or you can change a, a Q or an O can become a Q by putting a small dash on it they're, they're the same letter all you do is add a little tiny stroke and so Jesus is saying, look, none of that's going to be dissolved with regard to the law. Don't think I came to destroy it. And so he begins to speak to this issue of law. Where does law come from? And we're going to get to the three component parts of it tonight. And when you think about the law, ask yourself a simple question. If there is no God... If there is no God, if there is no God, then is there actually any law? If there's no one who, to whom we will one day be responsible, then isn't your opinion just as valid as anybody else's opinion? Isn't what you think about any subject whatsoever just as valid as any other person's opinion about any subject? And so Jesus is starting to speak to them in a way that they're being forced into a logistical corner in their mind. 
they're going to have to deal with who they are. And he's really bringing them to a place to where they're not just thinking about the law, but who's the lawgiver? Where did it come from? You see, because if God spoke the law to Moses, and there are three parts of it. There's the moral law, there's the ceremonial law, and there's the judicial law. All three parts were written by God. But why is there a moral law? Why is it that something is wrong versus right? Why is it as we sit here tonight, we would probably all, I would think 100% of us would agree that murder is wrong. Can I say to you, if there's no God, why would murder be wrong? Because we think it is? Because all of us get together and we agree that it is? Jesus is drawing their attention to something that we have to have our attention drawn to. Why do we have any laws at all? What's the basis of laws? Are God's laws, is what God said, still valid in our world today? And he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets, for I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. What does he mean, fulfill the law? You're talking about that whole thing that's known as the book of Deuteronomy? That part? I want to quote to you from a professor, Jacob Berman, of the Harvard School of Law. And he said this, he said, Our Western society is doomed to relativism in law because of the loss of the absolute. This is a professor of law at Harvard. When men break away from the idea that there is an authoritative religion or even the concept of God they break away from the possibility of absolute truth. Their only remaining resource is existential relativism, which is a slippery, unstable, ever-changing base in which no authoritative system of law or morals can be built. Godless laws can never command authority. which would lead us to this view, that any judge in any court in America upon reaching a decision is not propounding a truth, but is rather experimenting with a solution to a problem. And if his decision is reversed by a higher court, or if it's subsequently overruled, that does not mean it was wrong, but only that it was or became in the course of time an unsatisfactory answer to some. Indeed, it is now generally recognized that no judicial decision is ever final. That the law both follows the event, in other words, it's not eternal or certain, and it is made by man, it is not divine or true. And so he goes on to finish up this letter that he wrote to some inquiries about the state of law in the United States. And he said, if law is merely an experiment, and if judicial decisions are only hunches, 
Why should individuals, groups of people, observe those legal rules or command that do not conform to their own interests? He's absolutely right. And it is to that that Jesus was speaking. He's basically saying to this group of people that rules without absolutes are rules without authority, except by force or coercion. Isn't that what Rome was doing? You see, the Jewish people expected Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. Rome was doing exactly what they were crying out for. They were crying out for somebody to rule by force or coercion. Just make them turn into Hebrews. And in fact, when God is abandoned, truth is abandoned. When truth is abandoned, the basis for all moral laws is completely abandoned. And in fact, a consistent, a coherent legal system can't be built on philosophical reasoning. It can't. If it is, then every single person in this room is in essence a king of your own kingdom. Because truly, your decision is just as valid as mine. But Jesus is speaking to that lighthouse in the storm. He's speaking beyond the the godless society that is our world today. Jesus actually was coming to declare he wasn't preaching anything that was against what his father had already said to Moses. And that shocks us. Seriously? You mean I've got to keep all the law? He's going to go on to clarify that. He's going to talk about it. He's going to give us some insight into it. You see, here's the problem. The world has never fit Scripture, ever. Never. Scripture will change the world, and that's the reason that the world doesn't fit into Scripture. The world is always trying to tell us that we need to change what Scripture says so it can be compatible with the world. And Jesus is saying, oh no, it doesn't work that way. I'm the final authority, and what I say goes, so you need to change your direction to fit my directives. You need the one, you're the one that needs to change. You see, it isn't about my interpretation of the Bible. It's about what the Bible says about itself. And frankly, we have whole denominations here in the United States that are sliding off into that moral abyss. Because they have taken the authority of God and they've said God didn't say what he mean, meant. He didn't mean what he said. And so we're not going to teach that anymore. And you can go down a very long list. And in doing so, I need to be very careful. Because there are solid, honest, God-honoring, Christ-worshipping believers in all those denominations that are just as appalled by what's going on as God is. But when you run down that list, it includes the Presbyterian Church in America. It includes the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. It includes the United Methodist Church in America. It includes the Anglican Church. It includes the Episcopal Church. All saying basically the same thing. Nah, God didn't say that. He didn't mean that. You don't need to do that. We're going to do it this way because this is the way we think it should go. Jesus is saying, don't do it. 
because I didn't come to erase any of it. I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to change it. I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to negate it. I came to fulfill it. Yes, his grace is sufficient. But what he's saying is, as what was spoken as truth is still truth. And he's speaking, of course, of the moral portion of the commands. And here's why we know that. The ceremonial commands that were given to the nation Israel were for their benefit. They helped God and the Jewish people coexist in a way that he was their God, they were his people. And so as they kept the feast, they prefigured the coming Messiah. They gave them a very wonderful picture of his grace. They, gave them, they were given a picture of how he was to relate to mankind, all of these things. And those things, when Jesus came, he changed them because he changed that place that we stand in from the covenant relationship to a relationship by grace and through faith. And so that paradigm shifted. But the moral requirements of the law, not one yacht, not one tittle was changed. And in fact, Jesus says, look, it all still stands. The world doesn't like that. The world doesn't like dogmatism on issues that the scriptures clearly talk about. It's why there's been such a battle over the whole gay marriage issue. Because on one hand, you have the moral absolutes of what Scripture plainly declares. On the other hand, you have people saying, well, I don't like what it says. That's been the battle that's been going on since Jesus walked on this earth. I don't like what he said. I have to be kind to those who abuse me for his name? Yep, you do. I have to be forgiving? Even when they don't ask for it, yes, you do. You see, those things are contrary to the way our human nature responds to a lot of things. And Jesus is simply saying, look, it's my way. It's not your way. You see, it's impossible to believe that Jesus spoke absolute truth and not consider Scripture to be absolute truth. You understand that? And yet so many people do. So many people look at the Bible like it's a, it's a book of good suggestions. You know, like it's some self-help manual that you can just kind of interpret whatever, you, you can say whatever you want it to say. And they yank verses out of context. They begin to say, well, he didn't really mean that. You know, he's really talking about inhospitableness. Not actual sin. Now Jesus was talking about sin. And he named names as well. In John chapter 8, verse 31, it says this, And then Jesus spoke to those Jews who believed him. In other words, Jewish believers, Hebrew believers, completed Jewish people who had the best of both worlds. They understood that inside of all that beautiful and wonderful tradition, all the feast days, was hidden the good news. And Christ came and it was revealed and they gave their lives to him. Can you imagine the view that the Apostle Paul had as he, he became complete in Messiah? If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. 
You see, changing the moral absolutes, changing the moral law, changing what God said about the human condition, doesn't make it better, it makes it worse. Because he's provided truth for us. His revealed word is truth. It's absolute. It's inviolable. It is total authority. It's truth that's been conveyed to us. It's been spoken forth into our world. And we have to let it speak to us. We have to let it rebuke us at times. We have to let it correct us. We have to let it shatter us if necessary. How many people in here got shattered by the word at some point in time? I did. It rocked my world. It kicked my can so far down the road that I don't remember what county I was in. I remember that time, I was just like, no, it does not. Yes, it does say that, Jeff. That's exactly what it says. And that is exactly what it means. And all of a sudden, the, I'm faced with the choice. Do I agree with it, or do I disagree with it and disregard it? And when you begin to agree with what God has said, when you bring your will into alignment with His, you come to the place that, look, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. But when you remove the moral absolutes, there is no sin. And that's exactly why our world hates the word sin today. Because it implies that there is a God in heaven and we owe Him our lives. And so what happens is it's easier to say God doesn't exist. And if he doesn't exist, then I don't owe him allegiance. And if I don't owe him allegiance, then I can do anything I want and it's okay. As long as it pleases me. And Jesus is simply saying to us, that's not who I am. That's not what I am. As far as the people around Jesus were concerned, when he was growing up, he was a Jewish carpenter. As far as the people knew, uh, he began this ministry, he started to preach. He was just some guy from Nazareth. But then he started to speak for things like this. And he calls into question the human condition. And as he speaks those things into reality in their lives, they're going... No one has ever spoke as this man does. Because no one before, no one then, and no one after has been God incarnate in human flesh. That's why. The guy that wrote the book was speaking to him. He said, look, I didn't come to erase all that stuff. I meant it. My father meant it. When he met with Moses on the mountain... Those things were immutable. They're unchangeable. They were etched literally in stone. Amen? And it's a very interesting thing when you do a study of the Ten Commandments, because those are the laws that he's referring to. When you study those, there's only one among them that for us today, and it's the commandment to keep the Sabbath, because if you read Exodus chapter 31, you're going to find out that the Sabbath being kept was specifically for the Jewish people. It was a sign of the covenant between them and God. Do you know the one that Jesus did not fully keep with the disciples? It was the Sabbath. He was making a statement. He's saying, look, 
There's a new covenant. You can worship me every day. You can have a day. If your day of rest is on Tuesday, it's all okay. You don't need to be bound by the law. You're set free from that part of the law. But you do need to take a day with me. And from then on, the disciples met with Jesus on the first day of the week. Our Sunday. But the rest of them, Jesus not only repeated them, he expounded on them. He made it even clearer that those things were true. Have you not heard that a man is not to divorce his wife? Do you not know that someone who hates his brother in his heart is guilty of murder? Does not the scripture say that thou shalt have no other gods before me? You see, from Jesus' perspective, what he was saying is, look, the moral absolutes, they still stand. They're still in place. They still matter. And so, family of God, when somebody comes to you and they say, well, you know, I go to this church and, and, you know, we really don't believe all that Old Testament stuff. Ask them what Old Testament stuff they're talking about. Because Jesus believed all that Old Testament stuff. And he said, I came to fulfill not just the law, but the law and the prophets. Everything that was said about him in advance, he came to fulfill. Jesus didn't talk like anyone else. He didn't act like anyone else. They had never seen, never heard anybody. And as far as they were concerned, they were kind of looking for a ruler that was going to be more like Herod, more like the the Roman Empire. And yet here he is, the supreme ruler of the entire universe, speaking forth into their lives. And here they're focused in on, and from a Hebrew perspective, as the Jewish Targums had been, had been drafted, as they, as they took the, the Torah, the Tanakh, the Talmud, and as they compounded law and tradition upon law and tradition, by the time they got, even the time that Jesus was speaking these words, the law had become so burdensome that nobody even knew what it actually was. It was nearly impossible to understand it. And when they talked about the prophets, they all thought the same thing. They said, well, you know, it's kind of loosely to be sort of kind of like this. They believed in a Messiah that was radically different than Jesus. They weren't looking for Jesus. That's why they fell in love with Judas Maccabees. Wow, this guy's a warrior. He's going he's gonna to go out and take some names. We're going to go get down with these guys. You know, it's like, we're going to go take them. This is awesome. And Jesus tells the disciples, no, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. I say, what? You've got to be kidding. No, seriously, you're going to lay down your life for your friends. You see, when they were looking for a, for a prophet, they weren't looking for a prophet like, like Jesus. They were focusing in on the ceremonies and the rituals and the outward acts. And isn't that weird how people still do that today? 
It really is amazing when you, when you look at people who are so into tradition, well, we always do it this way. Freaks people out. You change the day that you do communion on, they're like, oh, you know. Can we do that? Yeah, you can worship the Lord on any day you like. That's what Paul said. Matter of fact, they're all the same, so worship him every day. You can take communion whenever the Spirit moves in your life. You want to take communion at your home? Take communion at your home. Just you and Jesus sometime. Go out in your yard. Stare up at the night sky and thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember who he is. You see, the Hebrew people forgot what the prophet Jeremiah had said in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Now they knew that he was going to come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. They knew that he would come as the root of Jesse. They understood very effectively those words written uh, some of them nearly a thousand years before the prophet Jeremiah would write. And the prophet Jeremiah now writing at roughly the same time as the prophet Isaiah, just slightly later, mid-600s B.C. So they'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day, which I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Is that simple enough for you? It's not going to be like the one that I made with the Jewish people when I brought them out of bondage from Egypt. My covenant, which they broke. And though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And that day is still coming, by the way. Jesus is going to make good on this promise as well. You want to see the end? You want to read the end of the story? Read Romans chapter 11. And one day, all Israel will be saved. And this says the Lord, that I will put my law in their minds. Now he's speaking of a time that's yet future. I will put my... So the law is going to stand long after Messiah comes. Amen? You know what Jesus is saying here? And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. For no more shall every man teach his neighbor. No more will people make it up as they go. For no more will there be this willy-nilly, secular, humanistic existentialism ruling the land. I'm going to inscribe a new law on their heart. Saying, know the Lord. Why? For they shall all actually know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And of course, we know that the only way that can happen is by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in his blood, erasing our sins. Amen? 
So as the prophet Jeremiah writes these things, now fast forward almost 700 years to when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's inscribing the new law on their hearts. He's giving them a preview. He's saying, look, here it is. I didn't come to erase it. The part that was the absolute moral absolutes, those still stand. But how you now relate to God, very different. That time, the temple was still on the temple mount. Amen? And from where Jesus is teaching this, you couldn't see the temple. It's about 65 miles north. But he could have said, hey, go to Jerusalem, check it out. The temple's still there, but one day it won't be there. The scribes, the Pharisees were, were really starting, I'm probably honing in on this by now. And so he says, look, I didn't come to bring moral relativism. I didn't come to bring existential philosophy. I came to remind you that what God said in times past still stands. But how you relate to him is going to change. You remember what Jeremiah, in effect, he was saying? You remember what Jeremiah said? He, he could have thrown that in there and said, look, you're hearing it right now. Jesus is speaking about the Old Testament law, specifically the Ten Basic Commands. And as we see the sermon begin to unfold, the verses 3 through 12 are really the character of believers. The next four verses, verses 13, 16, about salt and light. That's how we function in the world. And now, this is the foundation for those qualities that we have as Christians. So you go from the character to the function to the foundation in just a short little period of time. So Jesus is saying, look, here's the foundation. The foundation is, I change not, says the Lord. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am before, I am now, and I will always be. And you see, that does away with the moral relativist of our day that says, well, we need to change that because now we're going to redefine something so God-honoring and God-ordained as marriage. We don't have the right to do that. That's not something mankind can even dabble in. That is akin, and make sure that you hear what I'm saying correctly, that is the same vein as well, no longer is murder, murder. You know, as long as you kill somebody for the right reason, and you're good with it, get two or three people to agree with you, it's fine. Matter of fact, you want to destroy somebody's life, it's okay. You want to take their stuff, why not? I mean, after all, it's really you that matters. You see, there is no difference. If there's moral absolute, then those moral absolutes by function have to always be true. Jesus said there's moral absolutes, there's a moral law. The Apostle Paul said it's inscribed on the human heart. When Jesus uses this word to, to wipe out or to abolish, he's using a, a Greek word, kataluo. And, and that word was the same word that he would use in Matthew chapter 24, for the destruction of the temple. It's also the same word that the Apostle Paul used for the destruction of the human body when you die. He's saying, look, I didn't come to, to kill off the law. I didn't come to kill off the prophets. 
I came to fulfill those things. And so he's reminding you, saying, look, the preeminence of what was already said, by form and function, what God had already said can't be untrue if it involved the moral laws of humankind. It can't change. As Billy Graham once said, if God's law changes, then he owes some cities like Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. An eternal one. He can't change. It's not possible. God is perfect. He's eternal. And his word is wholly authoritative. So what was Jesus getting at? First thing that we can draw from this amazing passage. Number one, the law was written by his father. God authored it. And so as God authored it, Exodus chapter 20 says of the Ten Commandments, God spoke all these words saying. It's a fairly plain statement. Look, I spoke them, here's what they are. And he gives the Ten Commandments. God's always required an inward and an outward obedience to what he has said. First, we take those things in so that we understand that they're truth, and then we're supposed to do them. Isn't it funny how people like to do one or the other? They're okay with there being uh, an inward thing. Well, you know, I just honor the Lord in my heart. I'm sure probably almost everybody in here has heard somebody say that to them. Well, I don't wear it on my sleeve. I don't actually live it. But it's in here. Can I tell you that Scripture doesn't teach that kind of relationship ever with God? You have to have it in your heart has to be changed, your mind has to be changed, but there also has to be a repentance from the things that God says are not his ways. There has to be obedience that goes along with the understanding. Otherwise, you don't believe it. It's that simple. It's not truth to you. Isaiah 29, verse 13 says, These people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lips, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of a tradition that was learned by a vote. Isn't that weird? Some churches are like that, don't they? They just kind of vote on what they think is true. But we'll just throw that part out. We don't like that. During the exile and during the intertestamental period from Malachi to Matthew, that 400-year spread, The traditions began to be multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. And the rabbis, in order to make it more complex so that they could, in essence, have more power over the people, in order to do that, they weren't looking for truth, they were looking for power. And so as they began to heap tradition upon tradition, the Sabbath command, which is the reason that Jesus and the disciples broke it, had gone from... Thou shalt keep the Sabbath day, for it is holy unto the Lord. Two, you're not to carry any type of burden on the Sabbath. Any form of work, and it still exists today. If you travel with us to Israel, you'll, you'll be introduced to the wonderful Shabbat elevator. So you can just go there and stop on every floor, top to bottom, up and down, without touching any buttons, because that would be work. But during that day and time, they decided that a burden was the food in your hand equal to the weight of a single fig. 
this all began to be mapped out. That it was enough wine for mixing in a goblet. It was enough milk for one swallow. In other words, you could carry less than a swallow of milk, but not a whole swallow of milk. Otherwise, you were working on the Sabbath. And by the way, can I tell you, none of that's in the Bible. Not one bit of it. It was enough honey to put on a wound. They used that for a, an antibiotic. It has some wonderful properties. Enough oil to anoint one small member of your body. Enough water to moisten your eyes if they dried out. Only enough paper, enough parchment could be carried to write a customs notice. You could carry enough ink on your person to write exactly two letters of the alphabet. In other words, you could moisten your pen with some ink when you left your house. You could only carry enough reed to make a single pen. They would actually make their own pens. They'd take a reed, shave it down, put a slit in the middle. That slit would become where the ink flowed from. So you could dip your ink or your pen into the ink and then carry it with you. And if it dried out, tough luck. And don't put too much ink on it because you make more than two letters, you're in trouble. They couldn't carry any of those things. Since it was not possible to anticipate every move, then, or, or every eventuality in life. Can you imagine our lives today if we were to do stuff like that? Well, you can have one Lay's potato chip, but not two. You know, you, you can have the pickle from a burger, but not the whole burger. You can have enough gas in your car to go two miles, but not four. It would constitute a burden. And, and so it, it was that by the time this, these things played out, since it was not possible, they began to plan for everything. So they would actually stage food drops along their journey so that they wouldn't be caught actually carrying more than a fig's worth of food. So if they were going to go somewhere on the Sabbath, instead of recognizing that the law was from God, and God wanted them to actually rest on the Sabbath, we'll figure out a way to break it. Isn't that what secular humanism and existentialism does? First, they don't even acknowledge that God exists, but if they think He might be there then we'll make some way to deal with him so we don't actually have to do what he says. And so they began to do things about everything. Matter of fact, you, you would have committed a sin if you were a tailor and you had a needle that was stuck in your garment and you walked out the door with the needle still stuck in your garment because there was a possibility you might work. And so they began to argue, well, if you're in your house, could you move a lamp from one table to another place in the house? And if the lamp was out of oil, as long as you didn't move the oil to the lamp, but you took the lamp to the oil, was that work on the Sabbath? You see, they were missing the whole point. And isn't that what people do today? And so God boils it down, in essence, to these Ten Commands. And He says, look, you're not supposed to have any gods before me. You're to honor the Lord. You're not to take your neighbor's things. You're not to mess with your neighbor's husband or your neighbor's wife. 
He made it really simple. And in doing so, he encompassed mankind's relationship between man and him and between us and each other. And we couldn't do that. And so Jesus says, look, I came to fulfill it. It's not about whether you work on the Sabbath or not. It's not whether you can keep these things, because none of you can keep these things. It is about whether your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes were masters at actually keeping the law ceremonially, but actually breaking it. And that's how a lot of Christians live their lives. Well, they didn't actually have relations with that person that I'm not married to. Well, I only had one beer. That's how we function, isn't it? It's ignoring the issue. The issue is there's a God in heaven who's demanded righteousness from his people. It's not a matter of us keeping some rules and regulations. It's a matter of our hearts being his. It's a matter of us being like Christ. And so they began to look at the, the judicial law and the ceremonial law and say, oh, well, you must be talking about that. There on the plains of Moab, Moses reminded the nation Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13, he said, for he has declared to you his covenants which he commanded you to perform, and that is the Ten Commandments. He wrote them on two stone tablets. The Lord commanded me at the time to teach you the statutes and the judgments that you might perform them in the land where you were going and where you would possess it. He says, look, these, God gave these to you for your own benefit, for your own blessing. All Jesus did is say, look, those things are now, the way you keep those things is through me. Jesus came and accomplished every aspect, every dimension of those things. And he did so in Matthew or in Luke chapter 24, excuse me, in verse 44, he said this, and then Jesus said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their knowledge or understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. You see, God wrote it. It still stands. Those things were all affirmed by the prophets. They were always held in the highest regard. And so as the the prophets spoke, as Isaiah would remind us in Isaiah 46, he said, remember the former things of old. God spoke them. They're from him. They don't change. He's purposed it. He will do it. That history that's written in advance, that, that prophetic word that's spoken into our lives, that's why Peter would write, look, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. Or in 2 Peter chapter 1, when we made known to you the power of him, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We received that from God. And so Jesus is saying, look, the law came from God. I didn't come to erase it. I came to fulfill it. Christ accomplished what we couldn't accomplish for ourselves. 
That's why he said, I came to fulfill it. I came to bring it to fruition. I came to make it so. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 says, And therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering, the Old Testament way, the ceremonial law, the judicial law, you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You had no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me, speaking of Jesus, to do your will, O God. And he's quoting from the 40th Psalm. He says, Look, all that other stuff, that, that was taken care of at the cross. But the moral the code of ethics, the operational manual, the standard for humankind, it's never changed. It's always been the same. It's going to continue to be the same. That's why you could tell them, look, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, they're, they're, they're pretty good at being righteous, especially outwardly. It's got to be more than that. You see, there is a proper use of the ministry of the law. That's why First Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 says, actually picks up in verse 8, for we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And knowing this, the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless one, the insubordinate, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, the profane, murderers, the fathers, the mothers of murderers, for manslayers, for fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. Anything is contrary to sound doctrine. It's good for that. The law is good for confronting sound, uh, people who don't have sound doctrine. You simply say, look, this is what it says, just do it. And so Paul said there in Galatians 3 and verse 24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law did have a purpose. The law showed us exactly how impossible it was for us to save ourselves. Isn't that crazy? If you just take the nine remaining commands that are absolutes for us, we keep the Sabbath in Christ. He is our Sabbath. Amen? So that one actually is done for us now, which is kind of cool. So we're down to nine if you want to look at it that way because we do keep a Sabbath rest, but we keep it because of who Jesus is. But the other nine, there's not a person in this room that can keep all nine faithfully, not even for 24 hours. I guarantee it. It's an interesting try. You can go ahead and give it a whirl if you'd like. I have been unsuccessful in my many attempts. Because usually what happens is I get kind of prideful and I, you know, I get like halfway through. I'm going to make it, going to make it, going to make it. And then I'll covet something. Somebody will drive by in a car and I'll just have, wow, I'd like to have that car. That's, that's an awesome, like, oh, I hate it when that happens. You can't save yourself. And so the Lord uses the backdrop of the law to say, look, this is how impossible it is. I'll give you these nine solid things and a tenth one which I myself will actually be for you. I will be your Sabbath rest so you can rest in me, you can rest in grace, take the other nine, it's still going to be impossible for you to keep so I came to fulfill those in grace. As they're all walking away, they're just shaking their heads. The people are listening to these words. They're going, man, 
That's why we, the body of Christ, have Jesus as an epistle written on our hearts to be read by all men, for clearly we are that epistle. We were ministered to, and, and those things were written no longer in tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. Isn't that awesome? Because what happens now is we can wander around in that freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, knowing that we're not going to be judged by that law. See, the Old Testament, the people were judged by the law. Keeping it, making sure that they were absolutely on top of the law. And now Jesus filled those things and he said, In me, I'll give you my righteousness. And my righteousness does exceed the righteousness of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. All the people who really called themselves religious. And so maybe if you're here tonight and you know, you've, you've been going through a time of, you know, I went through a period of time and I just kind of had this holier-than-thou thing going on in my life. A little bit of legalism. A whole lot of bondage. Because I figured out the more things I had in my life that I thought I had to do and tried to force other people to do, the more miserable I got. Because I realized I couldn't even keep my own laws, much less his. If that's you, we're going to have the worship team come back up. We're going to spend a little bit of time in worship. And maybe you need prayer for that remnant of legalism in your own life. Maybe you've got some bondage still going on because you thought... Yeah, I don't even need that whole law thing. You, you, you think it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. And you need to get back to obedience. Maybe you need prayer for that tonight. Maybe you're just doing great. Maybe you're doing fantastic. Maybe you're doing amazing. And you just need to praise the Lord. And tell somebody how good he's been. You know, you don't have to have a problem to pray. Some people think, the uh, matter of fact, a lot of people, their whole prayer life is based on whenever they have a problem, that's when they pray. You're going to find that God likes to talk to you even when you don't have problems. So we have the prayer team come up, pastors come up, the ladies come up. Maybe you've been struggling with something in your life to where you just can't get free of it. He who the Son is set free is free indeed. Amen. Praise God that the law no longer has sway over us. But we have victory in Christ. Walk in it. Walk in that grace. And live your life as close as you possibly can to being like Jesus. This is what we saw this morning. Man. Be imitators of God as dear children. Amen.